Today's episode is from an interview I did with Ken Shamrock back in February of 2021. He is a UFC Hall of Famer, MMA legend, King of Pancrase, Impact Hall of Famer, and WWE Champion. Ladies and gentlemen, the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock. You know, you had a very interesting story and a very motivational story of just like, just what you went through, through your, your kind of rough growing up and how you even got into martial arts and things like that. You go into that story, it's just fascinating. Yeah, uh, I mean, I've talked about it, you know, in a lot of my different um, uh, a podcast where we talk about motivation and, and obstacles and, and uh, you know, keeping people strong-minded, uh, following their dreams, even through, you know, adversity. And so well, when I, 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 it's hard to kind of talk all of it or tell all of it because yeah. it's just such a lot. I've gone through four lifetimes, but just to give you a synopsis, yeah. a little bit of kind of what I went through. Uh, even at the young age of uh, five, six, seven, eight years old, I was in Macon, Georgia. Um, I didn't have anybody really at home watching me and my brothers. So we would get in trouble a lot, even at a young age. Um, I was getting in fights at the time I was six, seven, eight years old uh, in bathrooms in school. Um, and it was in a rough neighborhood. Uh, we all slept in basically one bedroom. I didn't really have a TV. or we were, So we were in a poverty area and, and, and we struggled. And she met somebody, moved to Napa, California, and then we thought things would change. But, of course, it got worse because the, the, the man that she married was from the military, and, and he started to, you know, discipline and, and do the military thing. And we weren't raised, like, at all. So right. we talk about wild animals. And then somebody coming in and trying to tame a wild animal after it's kind of grown up a little bit, it doesn't work well, right? So a lot of... A lot of beatings, a lot of uh, frustration on both sides. Ended up in juvenile hall, got stabbed at 10 years old. Oh my um, ended up in wow. juvenile hall, went through a bunch of different placements, failed them. Ended up in Shamrock Boys Home where I started to, at 13, I started to really have an understanding of what it was like to be cared for. Uh, understanding of how to put my anger into something positive, which was sports for me. Um, and then once I started seeing success in that, um, I started to feel important. I felt relevant. I was important for something. People wanted me for something. So I latched onto that. Um, as I graduated, I ended up uh, going into college, playing some football. I also broke my neck in high school. So when I broke my neck in high school, they said that all my athletic stuff was over. Um, but that was a whole other story and motivation where my father just basically told me, you're the only one that could change this. What are you going to do? And so I took it to heart and put myself in a great position uh, with training and working hard and being mentally strong to put myself in a position to play football. From football, I ended up wrestling, um, getting into pro wrestling. And then I went into the, the, the cage. I went into the, not cage, but into the, into the UWF uh, where there was a hybrid wrestling into pancreas, which was the uh, shoot style, hybrid fighting uh, wrestling style. Yeah. Uh, and then into the UFC. Uh, so it, it was a lot of obstacles along the way, a lot of different ones. And even as I got into my career 
there was more obstacles because I got successful. I had money. Everything came to me for free. So I got into some trouble in there and then had to rebound after losing it all and getting back to where I'm at today. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. In, in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> that's so wild, man. I, I, I tell you, man, they need to make a movie on you. I just, just on that alone. I mean, that story of like when you broke your neck and yeah, the doctor's like, you're done. And I couldn't even imagine what that felt like, especially that you identified with that so much uh, and then turning that around. Now, you know, you've been part of some of the biggest uh, historical moments in fight history. I mean, really. Uh, and even ushering that in, paving the way for fighters these days to this day. So uh, what is uh, something like your mindset and philosophy on preparing for a professional fight? Yeah, you know, um, I think when you're going into that, especially uh, you have to build up to that, obviously, because there's a lot of, and, and the way that the, the world of fighting is set up, um, it, it prepares you for that event, that, that big time event. Um, so when you get to that point, you've already done things that, you know, you make mistakes preparing for a fight or do this. And that's what we talk about when people lose, right? Those are obstacles. Uh, what do you do when you get beat? Well, you figure out how you got beat and you don't let it happen again. So after you go through a bunch of those, where you go through two or three or four, whatever you whatever you do, of those big-time losses, um, you learn how to make not make that happen again. And then when you get to that point where you're fighting the best in the world, the one percenters, you've already gone through those mistakes. You don't make those mistakes when you're at that level because when you make the mistakes at that level, it costs you a fight. Um, you can get by with it when you're a little bit less than that and you make some mistakes and you recover from it and you can still win. But when you get to that 1% level, you make a mistake, you pay for it with a loss. So I got an opportunity to really make some mistakes over in Japan, still win. Um, and then in the UFC early on, made some mistakes. I made one with Hoist. That never happened again, you know. Um, right. So I ended up, oh, I only got submitted one time in the UFC. I only tapped out one time. Yeah. Uh, because I said that's never going to happen again, and it didn't. Um, so, you know, I've got knocked out. I've lost by decision. I lost by getting knocked out, which, quote, unquote, knocked out. I don't think I've ever been knocked out, ever. Yeah. Um, but because of the way as the rules are and the different things that happen in those times, uh, it's not the same as the old days where you go you hit somebody, they go down. you got to finish them. Yeah. And the newer rules and the way the USC is today it's like they stop you when you get it four times and yeah. so it, it takes away from the actual skill sets of guys that are just tough yeah. as nails uh, I was older at the time there's no question I didn't have the skill sets that a lot of those other guys did that I was fighting at that level and therefore the only chance I had was to wear them out let them go ahead not let them but let them, you know if I get hit a bunch of times I'm fine uh, and sooner or later, they're going to slow down to where I'm able to catch up to them. Unfortunately, because of the rule sets, they, you know, they, they were going to stop them. And so I wouldn't get a chance to, to show how, how tough I was. Wow, that's interesting. Wow, it's, it's so wild. And hearing yeah, that behind the scenes on that is amazing. I mean, especially since USC won. I mean, that, that just changed the culture. It was a cultural shock. And, and what I always loved about you in particular was that you were really, at least on a public view level, uh, you were like the first guy to truly like mix all those martial arts styles. You know, you had your grappling, you had your submissions, you had your striking. Uh, you also had the fitness uh, training as an athlete for this specifically. Uh, what what kind of uh, uh, inspired you to go that route and in, in being like cross trained? 
Well, you know, I think it had to do with me being involved with the hybrid wrestling early on, whereas that, you know, in, in the UWF in the, in the early days, uh, you had to be in great shape because matches would go 15, 20 minutes. Uh, and it was at a high level. You were running, you were kicking, punching, throwing people, rope escapes, and therefore you were constantly going and fighting for 15 minutes straight. And, uh, and so you had to be in a very good shape. And so that's when I really started to understand the, the, the cross-training, not just for bodybuilding or for fitness, but for fighting, the cardio shape you need to yes. be for fighting. Fortunately for me, I had a physique of a bodybuilder, even though I was cross-training and doing cardio, I still had the shoulders and the arms and the abs and all the back and stuff like a bodybuilder. But I wasn't training like a bodybuilder. I just happened to have that kind of physique. Interesting. By the way, still do, bro. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's just so interesting seeing that. And um, you have a very interesting mindset. I, I, a lot of people, this applies not just, I mean, you do a lot of public speaking. Even you speak at churches, which is, I think, amazing. Um, but a lot of people watching this, this will apply not just for fighting, but just any vocation, really. You have a very interesting thing when you went to a ring and you locked eyes with an opponent. You had a certain, like, mindset. You go into that I, I love it. Yeah, I tell you, when I went into a ring, uh, and, and, it, and it was a strategy, uh, I would be, especially before the fight, being around them, I would try to break them before we got into the ring. Uh, and it wasn't much something that I thought about, like, oh, I'm going to go ahead and just mentally mess this guy up before he fights. Right. It was it was how I grew up, right? Uh, if somebody was around, especially being in a group home uh, or in juvenile hall, um, a lot of times, because when you fought, there was severe punishment, right? So when someone would come across you and you knew they might want to fight, you had to punk them out. Like, you literally had to scare them. Like, like they knew that if they started something that you were going to fight them and you are going to hurt them. And, uh, and that way it would, it would deter them to want from wanting to fight you. Right. And that would then pay, bypass the punishment you were going to get, okay. but then yeah. it still built up your reputation as being, don't mess with that dude. So when I got into fighting, I basically just used that same mentality of, even though we were going to fight, I use that same mentality before the fight in interviews, because I was so used to to staring guys down and, and just getting in their head and scaring them before a fight that it just carried over into my ring uh, prep um, um, when I was training and getting my mind ready for the fight. When I would be around my opponent, that would do the same thing. And I would literally try to get in their heads and discourage them from wanting to fight me. And it wasn't something like I said, oh, well, those guys don't want to fight me. It was just right. natural for me to get after them. And then when, the, when I stepped into the ring, I knew it was game time. I knew a fight was going to happen. And I stared right through them like they were already dead. Wow. Right, some of the most intense stare. I, I want to pop this in. This is like one of the best stare downs of all time. Ken Shamrock versus Don Fry, Pride 19. And one hell of a fight, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how his knees survived all those things. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it didn't ask him. It didn't. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and that was amazing, too. Like I said, you really were mixing everything so well. Um, like the leg locks, was that that's from the, the professional wrestling uh, leading into it side of things? Is that where that entered your training? 
Yes, I learned all of that stuff in hybrid wrestling. Um, I learned it from Fanaki, Fujiwara, um, all those guys, Takahashi, guys that I would work with and train with, Suzuki. I mean, all of those guys. I learned all of that stuff in a hybrid wrestling, and then we turned it into a shoot and a real fight. Uh, amazing. And all, all legends right there that you just mentioned as well. Um, yeah, it, it, it's unbelievable. And it also crossed over. I mean, like, you're one of the, the rare people that was doing the real deal, and I love how it just transfers over so well to uh, getting to the WWF. I mean, you had an amazing... I, I had to put this in. Put, put the, the rock through some pain here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> speaking of leg locks. But, like, you had an amazing run in there as well. What... Um, uh, maybe... I don't know. Maybe you were more prone to going that route, or what made you want to go that WWF route? I've always challenged myself to a higher standard uh, and never got comfortable. Even today, I still do it, right? I mean, I'm, I'm 57 years old and I still challenge myself in every aspect of life uh, to staying fit, to staying in the best shape, to looking better than anybody else. And it's not like I'm trying to put anybody down, but I just that's who I am. I mean, I'm always competing in something. And, uh, and I'm competing to be a great dad and a great grandfather and, uh, and, you know, a great husband. These are all things that I compete in because I'm a competitor. And uh, as long as I go at that, in that, in that mind frame, yeah. um, then I'm always going to push myself to be great at that. Even though I'm not saying I'm going to be the greatest of all time, but I am saying that I'm going to be the greatest of all time in my area in where I'm trying to be successful, uh, whether it be a father, a grandfather, whether it be promoting fights, whether it be pro wrestling, whatever it is, I challenge myself to a higher standard. That's what I did in this. I went from wrestling to the pancreas organization, yeah. to the UFC, into the WWF, and then back into the fighting again, then back into wrestling again. Because doors were open and they were closed. They would open and they would close. And then whatever doors I decided to go through at that time was the doors I walked through and said, I'm going to be the greatest. I love that. I love that. And I, I, I always felt, and that's why we love uh, the Olympics, right? It, it's that competition should raise you to that yeah. that, that next level. Uh, I absolutely love that. Uh, and was, in particular, we're on the subject with the WWF and later WWE. Uh, was, is there a particular, for you, like a match or training or any aspect of that just kind of sticks out to you the most? Uh, yeah, with pro wrestling, I think it's got to be The Rock, uh, the programs that I worked with him, uh, King of the Ring, um, just some great, great memories, uh, and also a great path uh, that we were able to really work off and start our, literally our legendary careers, even though I already had one prior to that. But I felt like I was challenging myself to do more and I thought that in that sense, with me and The Rock, it really pulled me into that legendary status in pro wrestling. And oh, yeah. so I, I thought those were great. But again, it's hard to compare when you have matches with Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart and The yeah. Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin. I could go on. Uh, it's, it's hard to compare which one was great because... Yeah. Yeah. These guys are the, you know, these guys are not only Hall of Famers, but these guys are some of the greatest to ever step into the wrestling oh, ring. Yeah. Oh, Unbelievable. Amazing. And you, yeah, like I said, you, every turn, you've been a part of uh, amazing uh, things. Uh, and of course, uh, I mean, of course, this, I mean, changed everything when this came out. UFC won. You mentioned that first fight with Hoist Gracie. Uh, you know, it, you never let that happen again. And honestly, that second fight, man, I, I mean, <laughs> I proof's in the picture right there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, and obviously I, that third fight was just, I, I don't know. <laughs> 
Uh, I I think it's I think it's so crazy because I remember when that fight happened, they were literally beating me up, the Gracies and all that whole fan base, saying that I didn't come to fight. And I'm like, what fight are you guys watching? I mean, I get it if you're not a if you're not an actual fighter. I get the fans going, I can't see that, which they couldn't see what was going on. But them actually, as them practicing jujitsu, practicing in this realm, for them to say something like that after they see that I literally sat in his wheelhouse, like said, I'm here, try to beat me. I'm in your guard, this is where you want me. I'm here, now beat me. And I literally pummeled him and headbutted him and did every hit his body, all little shots for all of that time to set up. And that wasn't one punch. Like, I hit him one time oh, with a stand-up, which blew up his eye, but you seen the rest of his face. That wasn't one punch. That was a, a grind for 36 minutes with punishment that I presented on his body, his sternum, and his face. Un- unbelievable. And, and, yeah, the performance was amazing. And I love that. Again, you know, always be the be- striving to be the best. I'm going to take you to your game and, and, and attack you there. I absolutely love that. I had uh, the great uh, Dan Severn on the show, and this match was absolutely amazing. Uh, I loved it. Uh, every time he shot me, I was just like, ooh, that guillotine is just popping in, and sure enough, you just sunk it so good. And what, what is that, uh, that that sweet taste of victory? Just put all your skills together live. Put all those skills together. What does that, that feel like for you? Well, that moment right there, because I had already had the success with Hoist, even though the that, that realm of Gracie's were trying to bash me, but I literally rose to the elite level of being that, that oh, I already did it in Japan. Now I'm the greatest here in the U.S. US because of what I did to Hoist. Um, and Hoist won four tournaments. Uh, he, he was tremendous. He was awesome. He was un, unstoppable. Uh, don't take anything away from him. The guy was a stud. Um, so, but for me to be able to do that with the experience that, uh, a level that I had, as opposed to what he had and his family had was like climbing Mount Everest. I mean, it was just really hard to break, uh, but I was able to do it. And that was something that, that put me there, but it hadn't really said, Hey, okay, he's it because Severn had just gone through and ripped through everyone. Yeah, he was, yeah. a, he, he had the greatest nickname beast because he was a beast through that UFC and he tore everybody up and even as he was tearing everybody up he beat Oleg I mean he beat everybody, oh, yeah. just tear everybody up and I'm literally thinking in my head and when me and him were getting ready to fight I'm thinking he can't beat me I, I mean and it wasn't like the hoist thing in the first fight where I was cocky and didn't know what he could do okay, it was cool. literally knowing what he could do and saying to myself how is he going to beat me he can't he, if he, even if he out-wrestles me, how does he win? Because every time he takes a shot, every time he moves, I'm going to hit him with a submission. So, And he can't exactly. out-punch me. He's not going to ground and pound me. He doesn't have the skill sets to be able to throw anything to hurt me. I've got better stand-up. Uh, I've got good defense on the ground. And uh, my wrestling skills are pretty decent. I, they weren't up to his. But I felt like with the strikes, the kicks, and the knees, that my, my stand-up and my wrestling, my defense takedown, would be much better than his because I would take him out of his game to be able to tie up and shoot on me. And it worked out to be perfect because in my my mind, I'm going, I don't know why the odds got him favored because I can't see how he could beat me. 
scale it. Yeah, no way. I just couldn't see it. And then I went in and proved it. But that, after I beat him, that literally said, Ken Shamrock is the best fighter in the world. The world's most dangerous man. Hands down. Yeah, hands down. And and, yeah, and, and actually, a, a, a badass fight name yourself, man. Come on. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a right. true fits. Um, and I also, while we're talking, I want to let everybody know about this. Uh, the world's most dangerous podcast, guys. you got to check this out. Uh, I, I love, you know, play, play of the fight name, of course. Um, but you've, you've fought in, in every major fight organization, um, uh, huge fights. And, of course, you had a big target on you, of course, right? The world's most dangerous man. Guys are all, all lined up to go after you. But this right here, the Pancrase, I mean, King of Pancrase, uh, uh, absolutely amazing. What was it like fighting there? Because it seemed like um, UFC was very electrifying, but Pancrase just had the extra uh, energy to it, it felt like. Well, Pancrase was different because in UFC, you get away with not being good at something. Like, for instance, if you were a great wrestler, uh, you could literally take guys down and ground and pound them uh, and win a fight. Uh, or like if you were like Gracie, where you would make a mistake and he would catch you, right? There was no escape. You couldn't grab a rope uh, and then restart again. So what it did was it pushed the skill level at a higher level. You had to learn how to strike, kick, punch, knee, all that, because there's no way that you're going to get away with not being able to kick and punch because there was too many rope escapes. You're going to be forced sooner or later. You're going to be forced to your feet. And you're going to have to fight standing up. So it forced you to be good on the ground and it forced you to be good standing up because you couldn't catch them in a hole and then the fight was over because they could grab the rope and escape five times. So it's crazy. It it really forced your skill sets to be good standing up and on the ground. Probably probably just dragging away from the rope. (laughs) Stay in the center. (laughs) I, I did that a few times, but when you're talking about your body, you know, let's say oh, an yeah. average average height is, for fighters is probably five, or no, probably about six foot, five, oh. 11, six foot. When you lay that out, that's 12 feet. The ring is oh. only 18 feet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard to keep from grabbing the rope. <laughs> it's, so, it's so wild. Yeah, and you did see right around that time, you, you started seeing guys like you, like uh, with that cross train. I think you had a, a, a couple of amazing performances with Boss Root and and catching those nasty leg locks, man. Oh, that one knee bar, I thought, oof, yeah, very, very good stress, let's put it that way. Well, I, I had actually, that was the first time where I'd actually changed my setup. So most of the time, you've got to get the hips down. you got to slide that knee across and then into the knee bar, and it's really smooth because you're in control. You keep the hips flat. You don't allow them to kind of come up. Well, this one here, I had to change because even when I fought Suzuki, I had to change all my setups because, not Suzuki, but Fanaki, because when I fought him, he, he's the one that trained me, so he knew all my setups. Yeah. So when I fought Boss and when I fought Fanaki, I changed all my setups. And this was the first time where anybody saw a knee bar done like that. Uh, because instead of going over the hip, sliding the knee across the body, I just spun it around so that he didn't see it coming. Oh, big, and big time. It was on tight. Yeah, and I love that you mentioned Fanaki. I mean, Atlanta legend is already did quite a bit, bit of training with him, correct? Yeah, I trained with all those guys. I think... Um, Takahashi, I trained with him the most uh, when he first came in as a young boy, and I worked with him quite a bit. And I'll tell you what, man, that was one kid that was tough as nails. I really enjoyed his heart and his competitiveness when I fought him. And every time when I fought him, even after I you know, put a beating on him, he would come up to me and thank me. I mean, he was so appreciative of getting in there and going with me. And he, he, he was like 
you know, and I, sometimes I would kind of want to feel bad. And he, he said, no, 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 please. I want everything. And he would say, no, please. I want all of it. I want it. I want it. And I was like, okay, you know, cause he was a young boy, uh, but he didn't want me to ease up on him. And so for me, I loved his determination in his heart. And, uh, when he went into the UFC and fought in the UFC, he could have went in the finals against uh, Jerry Bolander. Uh, but he chose not to out of respect for me. Really? Wow. Yeah. I, that's amazing. Yeah, there's something with that, you know, uh, or at least one would hope. But like true martial artists, like there's that, there's that bond. If you're like opponents, uh, yeah. you, you can't help but get that. Now, and you also, uh, man, you, I love this side of you, you as well. Uh, that's the Lions Den. Uh, number one, obviously so iconic now, but uh, what made you uh, go this route? And honestly, uh, from a coaching standpoint, I imagine there's a whole different level of just that, that, you know, coming full circle and helping these guys become champions. Yeah, I just felt like I, I without actually um, going into detail and depth uh, of, of my thought process and, and how I train guys, but just to give you the yeah, surface yeah. of it, I felt like that the things that I had gone through in Japan and the things that I had to go through for different tryouts to, in Japan and the beatings and the things that I went through, I felt like that if I could bring that to the U.S., the training that they were doing in Japan and in okay. the dojo, and I could bring it here to the U.S. and train these guys here into the UFC, that their mentality and the toughness that they had would be so far superior to anything any of these guys ever saw. And as you've seen, uh, as you've seen the, the history of the Lions Den and the tryouts, it was that. It was true. The guys that passed the tryouts, nobody could beat them. No, exactly, exactly, and all that skill set again goes back to that skill set. Um, you know, and you've done so much, and you're still working. Man, I, you got so much. I, in my mind, you got so much left in the tank. Uh, is there like a a, a a top three list of guys you love to fight, or guys you maybe never had a chance to fight that you love to have fought? Yeah, you know, I'm not going to go on that. I would say this, though. If I could change something uh, and fight somebody that I had already fought and been able to go in and have a better fight with them, would have been Tito Ortiz. I felt yes. with Tito, I was definitely out of my prime, definitely way gone from being able to compete with somebody at his caliber. In my opinion, he was probably um, one of the greatest light heavyweights, oh, yeah. in my opinion. Uh, and then for me to be where I was at at the time, I uh, felt like even though people enjoyed it and, and, and had fun with it, I, it just felt like I just left it short because I wasn't able to, to do the things that I normally was used to doing. Uh, and I felt even that, even though I, because I know a lot of people say I hated Tito and that I did, I did that because I was insecure. I did that because I knew I couldn't put in the training I needed to to go in and fight this guy. So therefore, I had to try and get in his head and try to, to let him know that I was there and that he was going down, you know. And it, it was to a point to where, you know, I knew inside that I had a chance to win, but I also knew it was definitely an uphill battle because I, I wasn't the guy that was able to throw in submissions like I used to. And I felt if I could have gone back 10 years and fought him, me and him in his yeah. prime, I think me and him would have been some of the greatest rivalries in, in fight oh. history, period. Oh, hands down. Hands down. You know, and there's something, uh, you know, especially being, you know, obviously I've been part of a fan ever since uh, the early 90s when everything first started out, like UFC and, and Pancreas, you know, you know, and then things led into Pride and all that. Uh, man, I, 
there, there's a certain nostalgia that's wanted by many, many fans of MMA. It's amazing seeing how everybody's so cross-trained. It's very, it's very you know, elite athletics. But it's so poetic about that style versus style. Uh, it, it'd be amazing to just uh, finally uh, to go back to you. You kind of, uh, I mean, you were piecing everything together. But there was, there's uh, some more fun in many ways about that style versus style. I don't know. I don't have tape on this guy. Let's. Let's see, put my skills against your skills. Yeah, I think that's what made the early UFC uh, so popular. Uh, I think it was because people wanted to know, you know, what was a boxer going to do against a wrestler or a wrestler against a karate guy? You know, what was the real, who was the real tough guy? And of course, yeah. I think we've seen over time, it wasn't Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. It was like they tried to push to the greatest thing on earth. Um, right. But I truly believe that it was the mixed martial arts. It was the striking, the whatever style you wanted, whether it be karate, whether it be Muay Thai, whatever you were good at. But mixed in with wrestling and submission, which is what we call catch wrestling or shit fighting or, you know, pancrase. Uh, I truly believe that it's the mixed style uh, that truly makes a person the greatest. Man, I love that. Uh, you know, kind of as we're kind of wrapping up here with uh, the questions is... Uh, yeah, I always like to ask is, you know, you have, you've done so much in your career. You've had multiple careers, really. I mean, right. you, I mean you got movies. I mean, everything, man. Um, what would you say is like your most of your career as a whole? What, what, what's your most proudest of, of your whole career? Yeah, you know, I, I go with things that will never change. And it has to be when I beat Dan, you know, when he was tearing through people and I choked him out. Uh, when nobody saw that coming, nobody believed that that would happen. They thought Dan would just throw me all over the place, and I was able to choke him out in a short amount of time. Uh, that was a great moment. But then there's also the two-day tournament uh, where, you know, I won that um, against all odds, you know. I mean, from my understanding, they already had Fernaki's name on the, on the belt. Uh, so, yeah, I, and again, that's just, that's hearsay. I don't know if that's true. Of course, there's always rumors of things, so I don't know if it's true or not, but yeah. but it's kind of a funny one to hear. Uh, when you're fighting for real, you can't depend on anything to happen, right? So I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure that's a true statement, but it sounds good. Uh, but uh, the other one, too, is when I, when we changed from the hybrid wrestling into Pancras, the very first event. And that yeah. me and Fanaki main we headlined that first show uh, before UFC ever came out, before anything that was yeah. real came out. That was the very first time that someone really said, you know what, uh, this is a real fight, a real tournament. Fights went quick. Me and uh, Fanaki went in there and I beat him. And yeah. uh, that was something, I think, that made a statement not only to myself, but to the Pancras fans and to the United States people that were watching it, that this was real. And that you can't predetermine, even though Fanaki was had much, much greater skills than I did at the time, but you can't predict anything when it comes to mixed martial arts. Yeah, yeah. You, you really can't. That's the beauty of it. And, and, you know, and another thing is uh, kind of missed, because everything's pretty much like a, it's a tournament bracket system, but you, you would fight two, three times in one night. I, I remember there's one, I was, I was super bummed. I'm, I'm not sure if it was UFC... Uh, it was one of the first, uh, uh, within the first six UFCs, where you got to the end and you couldn't do the final bout because you, you broke your hand, punching the guy before. Uh, you know, I, I guess that has a part to play. What was that story like for you? Yeah, it was tough because uh, on my hand, I still got a lump that's like sticks up like this. It's like, it's like another knuckle. 
Um, it, it, because I, when I went in there, I already broke it in practice, so I had to skip the tournament before that. Like, I wasn't there. I was supposed to come back and avenge that loss. I ended up breaking my hand in practice. Uh, and so, therefore, I had to sit out. I got the cast on there. And so then we go back to do the next one, and, and uh, I get through it. I end up going against Brian Johnston. I take him down. Uh, he was a beast, too. And I, I smash him. I break my hand in the middle of the fight. Right. And so I hit him one more time with it and it starts to sting. And so then I get hitting him with my left hand and then I stay. He wasn't tapping. Right. I was hitting him and hitting him. And so finally I just said, well, I'm going to just try to choke him. So I put my fingers into the fence and I put the blade of my arm down on his neck and I choked him and he tapped. Uh, and he ended up tapping out and uh, end up winning that fight. But after I did that, I, my glove or the I'm sorry, not the glove, but the hand started to swell up. Yeah. And it started to feel really tight. And so I remember when they looked at my hand, it was swollen up. And uh, I tried to grab. They said, hey, put his hand out, grab my wrist. And I grabbed his wrist, and it it's, it, it, was, it stung. I mean, it, it pinched bad as I was trying to grab it. And he just pulled his hand out, and I couldn't hold it. And so I remember saying, you know, I'll just go for a leg lock. I'll go for a leg lock. And yeah. uh, the guy that uh, – because then that's when they had doctors there. He said, no, I can't let you go. And I was telling him, dude, I got oh. – yeah. I want Tank Abbott, like, that we were waiting for this fight. He, even if I don't have my hand, I'm not punching him. I'm taking him down, and I'm going to submit him. And he's yeah. going, I can't let you do it. He just said, I can't let you do it. And so, yeah, so that was one of those disappointing moments. And then, of course, I got with Tank Abbott, you know, he's doing his job. Uh, yeah. And he's telling fans, I didn't want to fight him. I didn't want to fight him. So he's trying to build up the next fight, you know, and yeah. – Nothing against yeah, yeah. him. I think that's great because I'd have done the same thing. Oh, he's just afraid to fight. He don't want to fight me. Yeah. Uh, you're just building. You're just building that that hatred up for the fans who want to see you fight again. Unfortunately, we never got a chance to fight after that because then when I tried to fight him before that, something happened to him. So yeah. it just just never was meant to be. Uh, so unfortunate. And, and, and kind of uh, in closing here, uh, I just want you just to kind of go back in your head. You know, back you're walking out. I know you already have some experience, of course, with pancreas. But USC won because it was such a publicized thing. Um, you know, what was that like, just walking out the, the, the walk all the way to the ring? What, what was that feeling? Take people through that real quick. Yeah, I tell you, it, was, it wasn't publicized. You know, I mean, it, it, it was out there in the mixed martial arts community. But as far as mainstream, no one knew about it. Like, yeah. you know, uh, I was fighting over in Japan uh, three days before that or four days, but four or five days before that, but I was there three days before the event. So I went over and defended my title against Fouquet. I knocked him out with a knee. Um, and so then I go on to, to this, this, this thing that they're talking about. Of course, in my mind, I'm like, ain't no way this is happening. I mean, they're literally talking back in, you know, what was this 90, something like that. Yeah. Wow. They're, okay. They're talking like, this is a street fight. Like you can go in and kick them in the head when they're down. You can, if you do, punch them in the balls or bite them. It just find you, but it doesn't stop the fight. And I'm thinking, shut up. Like, no way, right? This is not happening. It's not yeah. happening. But I agreed to do it. I said, I'll do it. And I started to play it out. Even when I was in uh, Japan, I defended it. Um, yeah. When I told bankers I wanted to do it, they basically, in their mind, said yes. But in their head, they're saying the same thing. They, they ain't gonna. This ain't gonna happen. Yeah. Like, they ain't gonna do this. Uh, and so they said yes for me to do it. Um, and uh, thinking that in my same head and their head, thinking, yeah, this is gonna be something else. Yeah. 
So we go in there, and at the press, leading up to the press, I, I see all these guys in there, Kevin Rozier. Um, yeah. I mean, just guys that just, there was at least probably half of them that shouldn't have been in it. I mean, they had careers earlier than that where they were champions and did something, yeah. but they were past their, they were out, they were past their prime. Like they, they were not, in my opinion, in shape. Uh, but then there was the other half, uh, like Zane Frazier and Hoist Gracie and Art Jimerson and guys that you knew that, okay, they got skill. Um, you know, even Gerard Godot. I mean, I knew him from Japan. So yeah. I knew that he was he was a tough guy. So out of all of them there, I saw Gerard Godot as the, my toughest competitor. I felt, okay, wow, okay, that's probably who I'm going to meet. Um, but I knew I beat him. I knew I'd just take him down because I fought guys in his caliber – uh, over in Japan, I just scoop them up, take them down, and they didn't know what to do. And so I was like, okay, this is a cakewalk. Mistake. It was a mistake <laughs> because uh, there was this guy walking around in pajamas called Hoist Gracie. Yeah. Uh, that that once I figured, I was too late once I figured, oh, wait a minute, this guy's pretty good. <laughs> That's at that, that time I was tapping. <laughs> it's super, super, super yeah. deceiving. Right, uh, man. <laughs> That's that's amazing, man. You, again, you know, obviously you're, you're you're living it, and I love that about you, man. Like uh, you just said it best. Like you're always pushing to be the best, and whatever it is, always strive for greatness, right? Always, always. Uh, and, and if you're, you know, some people may have, especially nowadays with the pandemic, people losing jobs. I mean, it's you know, lives at left and right, and it's still, man, like still push to be uh, uh, the best you can be. I mean, you do even like talks at churches and things like that. I mean. Well, hey, listen, listen, greatness comes from adversity. It, it, you can't be great until you know what adversity is, because then you will, well, you don't know what great is. Because you, 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 how do you know that until you really challenge yourself in areas where you may not do well in? And then you've got to figure out how you, how you can overcome that. And when you do that enough times, uh, even though you don't have to fail, you don't have to lose when there's adversity, but you can struggle and still win. And that's where I think people make a mistake when they say, well, you know, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to have to do that. And I was like, well, no, that's, it's not how life works in anything. You can't just be great. I mean, uh, people will Mayweather never lost. And I was like, yeah, but you're talking about a sporting event. I'm talking about life, sports, whatever it is, whatever your thing is, somewhere in your life or in sports, whatever it is, you're going to face adversity. And it, it, it will show what kind of character you are, what kind of person you are when you go through adversity. I love that. that it, and it's 100% real. It's 100% truth. Uh, man, I love that. I want to put this up for everybody. You guys can follow Ken. He's on all social media. Uh, and, and actually, check out his IDB page, man. He's got some movies out there. Actually, some things coming up. Uh, is this part of the show, as I'm signing off, uh, is there anything that you're working on uh, in the future that you'd like to uh, plug or promote or talk about? Well, I know we're working on some, some documentary stuff, some reality show stuff. So we've got a lot of stuff in the works that's not done yet, but we'll see if it, if it does get done. Um, I also uh, I'm working with BioAccelerator, um, which is, uh, you know, some stem cell stuff that I had tried early on, which rejuvenated my body and allowed me to be what I am today at my age. So that's something I'll be working on in the future. I look forward to that. And uh, if you're interested, like I said, the easiest way to find out everything that we're doing is go to my website, kenshamrock.com, and it's got all of our stuff on there. We've got our social media sites on there. Amazing, man. Man, 
Ken, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show, man. Absolute legend. Super huge fan of your work. And, and honestly, just super motivational across the board. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Warrior's Edge podcast. For more great talks and interviews on all things grappling, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. We also take topic recommendations, so feel free to reach out to us on our Instagram or Facebook pages for that. And if you're ever in our area, you're welcome to come in and train at our academy, Olympus Jiu-Jitsu. Until the next one, keep training.